Now, back to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and through the first couple of verses of chapter 6. In studying 1 Timothy, we're seeing how one ought to behave in the household of God. The, the, the business of God's church is truth. And so how one ought to behave in the household of God is got to do with the truth, the truth of salvation, that is, in Christ Jesus, that is, the godliness of our confession. But our godliness does not deny creation, like so many other religions that really come from the lies of the demons. For they deny the world that God has created for us to receive with thanksgiving. Where otherworldly people, looking forward to the life to come, rejoicing in God our Saviour, preaching the great mystery, the great secret of the godliness of Christ, but we are here in this world that God has created. Here's a brief summary for you of the doctrine of a brief summary for you of what we're on about here. That is, the doctrine of demons denies this world in order to gain the world to come. The doctrine of creation, though, I'm trying, I am trying, I'm not flipping it too hard, I'm just going down, oops, oops, there we go. The doctrine of creation, which you find in the law, means we receive this world with thanksgiving. The food that we eat, the drink that we drink, and marriage and the like. But the doctrine... I'm trying again. Where am I going wrong? Do I need to point this in a particular... Oh, there we are. The doctrine of the resurrection, which you find in the gospel, we preach godliness which is of benefit in this world and in the world to come. The hedonists, you see, only believe in creation. The spiritualists only believe in the world to come. We believe in this world and the world to come because we believe in creation and salvation, which is caught up in the godliness that Jesus brings for us. So it should come as no surprise to us that godliness does not deny created relationships. I don't suddenly cease to be a human or a man or a husband or a father because I've become a Christian. These characteristics of my existence are now subject to the gospel word, but they're not discarded from the gospel. They're not discarded from my life. Some things are discarded, especially in repentance. I would like to discard that note up there. What am I doing wrong, my brothers? There's something really wrong with me, or is it the battery's gone? There's a thought, isn't it? There must be something wrong. Uh, there, I've done it. I've gone too far, of course, but I've done it. I just want to get back to the black sheet next. See, one touch. The man's a genius. Well, we knew that already from last night and previous nights, except for when he referred to me. These, these characteristics of my existence, this created order, this being a man, being a father, are now subject to the gospel word, not discarded. Now, some things are discarded, especially in repentance. I'm to discard my sinful self-centeredness. I'm to discard my rebellious self-will. I'm to discard my self-determined autonomy and lawlessness. Brother, put it back together. That would be helpful. <laughs> that was a long slide down into death. Are we remembering what we're talking about here? Just a minute. Some things are not discarded or repented of because they're part of God's good creation. Marriage, food, drink. Even though they not, may not be part of the age to come. You see, in the age to come, we will not marry and we'll not be given in marriage, for we won't die nor procreate in the age to come. But yet, I am married now and am to continue in the normal enjoyment of married life in this created world. 
and not to forbid marriage like the demons do. We all find the same identity in creation and salvation in Christ Jesus. So come to that passage in Galatians 3 that uh, I can't find. I can't. In Galatians 3, that was mentioned in question time, although these notes were written before question time. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, according to promise. Such unity in Christ means that we are together Abraham's offspring and heirs of promise. But that unity does not mean that I'm no longer a slave or that I'm no longer a male or that I'm no longer an Australian. It doesn't mean that a man can now choose to become a mother or a wife. These things, being a mother, being a wife, being a father, being an Australian, these things are not essential to our identity in Christ. They're not part of our inheritance or our unity in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to serving and relating to others, we don't dispense with the created order, but bring it under the teaching of the gospel. That is what we must now do. And so learn how to behave in the household of God. I'm now again trying to get rid of it. There. Timothy is a younger man. And so he needs to know how to teach and command people older than himself in a way that will not allow older people to look down upon him or ignore him or despise him. He doesn't cease to be a younger man because he's in Christ. He will cease to be a younger man when he gets older. That's when he ceases. Eventually there's a chance that he'll be the oldest man in the congregation. I won't ask him to stand up here at the moment, but the man who is the oldest man in the congregation was at one time a younger man. Don't know whether you ever worked that out or not. And the only way you get to be the older man is by hanging around for a while, not by becoming a Christian. Now, all this is illustrated in our opening passage today in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Notice this little passage, the retention of two dimensions of life in this world, age and gender. Firstly, age. You don't treat somebody older than you in the same way in which you relate to somebody who is younger than you. Intuitively, people who have normal emotional intelligence will do this, just as people who have been raised with good manners will do it. But sometimes people who have come to the gospel can feel that their newfound egalitarianism, they can ignore these niceties of social life as they treat older men as if they are just the same as their brothers. They couldn't be more wrong. You don't ignore them you Christianise them. The scripture says to rise in the presence of the elderly and to honour your father and your mother. And so here we are to treat older people as we would treat our parents, not rebuking an older man harshly and treating older women as we would mothers. In Romans chapter 16, uh, Paul says... Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. What affections, you wonder. What lies behind these words in Romans 16? Wouldn't you like to just have a little picture of how they actually related? I'd like to see Rufus's mother talking to the apostle. Many a young man has a great deal of thanksgiving to offer to God for the kind Christian women who have mothered them in the Lord. 
Such women deserve to be honoured by these men, as they would if they were in fact their mothers. However, notice the other side of this age dimension. See, while we are looking up to our elders, we must never look down to our juniors, but rather treat them as our brothers and sisters. I remember with great affection my first boss after my ordination. I was about 25 years old. But he always treated me and he called me his colleague, introducing me as if I was his equal. It was a great vote of confidence in a young man and a great exercise in humility in an older man. Well, while I've been, what I've been saying about age is relatively uncontroversial, the second dimension of gender causes heartache and soul-searching in our post-feminist age. For contrary to our culture of Western humanism, it says that we do not treat persons as persons, but as men as men and women as women. They don't mind it when we talk about age, but once you start talking about men and women then feminism of Western humanism enters in. For this passage says that unisex is wrong, that there are differences and we should respect the differences. And my brothers and sisters, the Bible is right and modern humanistic culture is not only wrong but profoundly harmful to both men and especially to women. Men and women are of one status in this world, in creation. We're quite different to the animals, for we alone, both of us united, are created in God's image, and so should be equal before the law of the land. Men and women are of one status in the world to come, in the kingdom of God. Quite different to other religions, both men and women are born again and renewed in the image of God, our creator and our saviour. However, equal is not the same as the same. So, if I can do it again, here we go. See, equal is not the same as same. Equal, four plus one equals 3.2 in that the sum of them is equal. They're both five, in case you didn't get it. <laughs> I'm, I normally talk, you know, in Sydney. And so you do have to explain the maths if they've been educated by the New South Wales Department of Education. But the components of each side of that equation are quite different. They're not the same. Equal and sameness are not the same thing. See, when the American uh, Declaration of Independence came, they stated it in these terms. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Now, they didn't imagine that all were created the same. They were created equal, but not the same. Some are tall, some are short, some are clever, some are not. Some are athletic, others are nerds. Some are handsome, and the rest of you, well, never mind. <laughs> there are any number of differences between people. The endowment of equality is in the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not in our constituted beings. And therefore, it means different things to different people. It means treating people differently is the way to treat people equally. The only way to treat my children equally was to treat them differently because they were different. One of them slept 12 hours a day. Another I couldn't get to bed before midnight. You treat them differently because they are different. But by treating them differently, you are treating them equally because difference, sameness, is not the same as equality. Different concepts which mustn't be confused. So here in 1 Timothy 5, we see that Paul wishes us to treat younger men and younger women as brothers and sisters. And in particular, 
the sisters, the younger sisters, in all purity. Or the NIV has with absolute purity. Not at all meaning, of course, that you can be impure with younger brothers. That's all right. It's just that there is a greater problem for younger sisters and their treatment by ministers than there is for younger brothers. That there is a difference between men and women, especially in Timothy's care to maintain sexual purity. Let me try and illustrate it with another thing in church practice. You see, I don't think it is beneath the dignity of any person, any young man, to take small children to the creche, small children in the creche to the toilet, or to change nappies. But for the sake of the children, for the sake of the young man's reputation, for the reputation of our care of young children, I think it's much better a job done by young women than by young men. And most feminists I've discussed it with agree because there is a difference, a difference that should be seen in behaviour and responsibility. Now, I've taken quite some time over the first two verses because they're a great statement of the principle of godly honour of people in the world that the rest of the chapter is about. We need to understand this principle before we look at the main subject of chapter 5, namely honouring widows, honouring elders and honouring masters. For these are the three groups discussed in the rest of the chapter and that little first paragraph of chapter 6. So here in 1 Timothy 5, we see Paul wishes us to treat younger men, younger women, older men, older women, along a certain principle that gives rise to this honouring. But as you go through the chapter, in each of them you'll see honour is the key word. So chapter 5, verse 3, honour widows who are truly widows. Chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour. And chapter 6, verse 1, let all those under the yoke of slavery regard their own masters as worthy of all honour. So how do you honour widows? Or as the next heading, point two on the outline has it, widows and the practicalities of true religion. And I read chapter 5, verse 3. Honour widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness in their own household and to make some return for their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has, her, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things so, as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever." Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enrol younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Beside that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Well, one of the beauties of just going through the Bible systematically is you talk on subjects that you never think of talking on. And one of the things that you discover is you talk on subjects that you never think of talking on. There are lots of people out there who need this subject to be talked upon because there are lots of widows, every church has them, and we do, know, we do need to know what our responsibility is. It's important that we know because widows are very important as a group of people. They are the most affected by the horror of death. And very frequently, they are the most vulnerable to the vicissitudes of life. 
You remember James, who talks about religion that is pure. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God is particularly concerned for widows. So we need to, and we need to be thinking about it. Here is Paul's advice about honouring widows by caring for them. So whose responsibility is providing for widows? Well, even in a welfare state like New Zealand, family responsibility mustn't be ignored. It may be now the way of providing is to fill out the pension forms for them or to help them with the tax forms, for there's always help that widows need, such as assistance with computers and doing some handiwork around the house, there are any number of ways widows still need to be provided for. And the basic social unity of humanity is the family. In particular, the family which brought you into the world and supported you through the long process of from being a baby to being an adult. That is the person who you should be concerned to care for, is the people who have done that for you. And so, the family is to look after. Here in chapter 5 we read, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And look at the stark warning in verse 8. Verse eight. If anybody doesn't provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith. Worse than an unbeliever. This is not an irrelevant matter to God. This is a really important matter to God. If any believing woman, verse 16, has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Verse 8 is a pretty strong statement of the responsibility for family provision, just as verse 4 sees it as a simple return for the work of parenting. However, family responsibility is placed in contrast in this passage to church responsibility. So notice how verse 16 concludes. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Remember the word church here. It doesn't refer to some worldwide body or some denominational committee or some interdenominational task force. It's talking about your congregation. The congregation in which your widows, your, the widows that belong to your congregation, are members of your family in Christ. It's to be presumed that enrolling the widows mentioned in verse 9 following is being enrolled as one for whom the church is taking responsibility and that the context before and after that commandment is about caring for them financially and personally. Now the church has limited resources and so mustn't be burdened by widows whose families can look after them. So notice the church may care, that is supply, help or assist the widows, verse 16, who are truly widows, which is how the passage opens again in verse 3. Honour the widows who are truly widows. Now you have to work out, if you're going to be providing for widows, you have to work out what, are the, what qualifies any woman to be enrolled amongst the widows. The church wasn't taking on responsibility for every widow in the community any more than a family is supposed to take on responsibility for every widow in the, in, in the local suburb. Some widows are already well provided for by their families and they don't need the church's provision. Others aren't really widows at all in Paul's terms. Or the young widows who are still able to look after themselves by marrying and raising another family. So the whole section starts in verse 3 with the issue of honour widows who are truly widows and finishes in verse 16 with those who are truly widows. The widows who are true, that is, all alone without a family, having nothing to hold on to but God. Now, of course, our word widow simply means one whose husband's dead. I mean, they are truly widows in our sense of the word. But he's talking of the widows in need. He's talking about the dependent widows who have insufficient means to care for themselves. And to be a true widow in this sense, you must be Familyless, verse 4. You must be left all alone, verse 5. But in her aloneness, 
She has to be really Christian and really in need, so she will be hoping in God and not self-indulgent. And Paul here is talking of the true widow, the one who is truly brought low into a situation of need, the poor widow, who has no one to hope other than God and so continues in prayer night and day. The wealthy widow, on the other hand, is tempted to trust in her own wealth and to use it in luxurious indulgence. The word self-indulgent there carries with it the sense of sinfulness that explains why verse 6 is so condemnatory. She may be alive and living it up, but she is in fact dead and awaiting her funeral. Of course you can be poor and self-indulgent, just as you can be wealthy and generous. More of that tomorrow. But not all widows are the same. And Paul is directing Timothy to the one who needs support, as well as those who need warning in verse 7. That is, the self-indulgent widow of verse 6 needs to be warned and the uncaring, irresponsible families of verse 8 need to be warned. Verse 7 actually warns both sides of the coin. If they heed the warning, they will not bring reproach upon themselves or the church. So he tells Timothy who to enrol and who not to enrol. Whom to enrol? Those over 60 and monogamous. It's the age of these widows that shows we're talking of their care, the care of the needy. It's the elderly widow, not likely to remarry and too old for manual work. But she also needs to be a real widow of a husband, the wife of one husband, the one man woman is what the Greek is saying, just as the elder is said to be a one woman man. I don't think it bans those who have been married twice or three times and widowed likewise, but it bans those whose immorality and unfaithfulness has brought them into the situation of penury. In other words, the self-indulgent who needs the warning of the gospel rather than the comfort of acceptance. I think the NIV has it better when it says, has been faithful to her husband. That is... We must, as congregations, care for our widows, but not with stupidity. There are widows and there are widows. The Christian character of those who are enrolled is further elaborated in verse 10 under the heading of a reputation for good works. I mean, a reputation for brought up children, showing hospitality, wash the feet of the saints. You can see here a close parallel with the reputation of the woman who professed godliness back in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Or again, not in self-indulgence, but other persons centred. It's like the passage, if you just turn over a couple of pages, over to Titus 2, Titus 2, verse 3, where it talks of the older women and their ministry. Titus 2, 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to too much, too much wine. They're, they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Here is a character, picture of Paul's view of the good woman, the Christian woman, the woman who adorned herself in the apparel of good works. And speaking of the younger women, there's another group not to enrol back here in 1 Timothy 5, verse 11, young widows. Refuse to enrol younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I'd have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already estrayed from Satan. Now the younger widow, you see, has two spiritual problems that will not be helped by being provided for by the church. The first is their passions and desires, for after a while they'll want to remarry. Now what's the problem with remarrying? In fact, doesn't Paul tell them they should in verse 14? 
So why does remarrying in verse 11 incur the condemnation and abandoning their former faith? There's nothing wrong with remarrying. But to be enrolled as dependent upon the church and then change from that enrolment to dependent upon a new husband could create the problem. First notice, it is a real problem, my brothers and sisters. It's a real problem of life. I know of a group of young widows who used to meet and pray in order to support each other. They started all grieving, all saying they would never remarry, but within two years, all of them but one had remarried, and most of them to non-Christians. They have a need, a very great need. Paul understood the human need and the sexual drives and he didn't want to make the situation worse by enrolling these younger widows into a class of pensioned widows, that is the true widower who has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Presumably to be enrolled required one to promise to live this way and to remarry was to go back on your pledge and promise. A second problem for the younger widow is, has nothing to do, is that she has nothing to do when she is fully provided for. And therefore her youthful energies will become a problem to her so that she becomes an idler, a gossip and a busybody. The same is said of men in 2 Thessalonians 3 who don't work. It's not a problem of gender, it's a problem of insufficient work. Idle hands are a danger to any of us. It's important to be kept profitably busy. So Paul's advice is to remarry, which sounds very prosaic and unromantic, doesn't it? But it's really quite sensible. For marriage is not fundamentally about love and romance, but about raising a family together, united in a common purpose, and being faithful to each other and to our promises. It was the mid-20th century Hollywood that taught us that love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. When it should be faithfulness and marriage, trust and marriage go together like a horse and carriage, not love, not romantic love. If you have romantic love and romance on top of that marriage, well, you're lucky. You've got icing on top of your cake. But a cake is a cake whether it has icing or not. And marriage is about raising families, which is a very important thing lost in the debate on gay marriage. Because when you make marriage all about and only about love, what happens if two men love each other? When it's about having families, then it is obvious that two men loving each other has nothing to do with family, with marriage. However, I won't go on that subject. Second one is how to honour elders. And so we turn to elders and the importance of true judgments. Verse 17. Let an elder who rules well, let an elder who rules well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labourer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that, so that, uh, uh, sorry, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going on before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. As I suggested to you a couple of days ago, elders are older men, not necessarily overseers. Some elders are appointed as overseers. All overseers are elders, but not all elders are overseers. 
So in chapter 5, verse 1, the word for older man is exactly the same word as the word for elder in chapter 5, verse 17. Why our translators translate it one way in one text and another in another context is unhelpful to our Bible teaching. You're to show honour to older men, or to elders, which is why he's speaking of elders' double honour. For there are some elders who are ruling well, especially, particularly in labouring in work of the overseer preaching and teaching God's word. Because he then goes on to speak of the labourer deserving his wages, most people think that the double honour refers to respect and payment. And it may well do so, for the labourer deserves his wage. But I don't think so myself. However, before I tell you what I think, let me just remind you and point out to you a very interesting little thing. It's completely by the way. If you want to have a little sleep, you've got two minutes. It's a very quick point I'm going to make now. It's really irrelevant to everything else, but just by the way, which now means you're all listening, in, in this verse he quotes Luke's Gospel, because the second of those quotes from Scripture is Luke's Gospel. That is, in this verse, he puts Luke's Gospel on a par with Deuteronomy. This is one of the very few places where the New Testament quotes the New Testament as Scripture. But they already were understanding what they were writing was Scripture. I told you it was a little irrelevant point to the argument, but it's interesting, isn't it? It's an observation. Now, come back and wake up if you have fallen asleep. If you have, I don't know how you've just woken up because I told you to because you're asleep. But come back on board here. I think that the double honour may not be money. Certainly we don't honour people in that way, but that's not it. Rather, we're to give special honour, emphatically real honour, for those who have this particular task for they deserve the respect. See, according to Hebrews, we're to obey our leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's a great, it's a great pleasure to be in a church where the ministers are really pleased to be there. It's really good for the church when your minister is happy to be there. It's really bad for the church when the minister can't stand being there. So make sure you honour them in such fashion that they actually enjoy being your minister because that will be of benefit to you, amongst other things. But what about dealing with accusations made against elders? This comes up all too regularly. And in the world of mass media, even more common as high-profile tele-evangelists or cyber-evangelists seem to fall into disrepute. We've had several in the year of 2015 and I'm sure we'll have more in 2016. Australia is going through a royal commission at the moment on institutional reaction to pedophilia, which is really a government attempt to attack the Roman Catholic Church, but that's not allowed to be said like that. So all churches are being attacked, but the Roman Catholic Church has a long history of cover-up, and it's all being now exposed. Weekly, church leaders are being attacked by the media as they have to appear one after another before the royal commission. Every denomination, every parachurch movement, it's a royal commission going on for five to seven years. Weekly, Christianity is being blasphemed because we've done the wrong thing for so many years. Paul outlines the actions to take. You can see my five-point summary on the outline here. One, do not admit a charge lightly. So easy for those in leadership to acquire enemies. So easy for rivals to try and undermine leadership by accusations and rumour and gossip. It's so important for the evil one to bring the leaders down. Don't believe all that the rumour mills grind out to you. And don't forget the justice of the law, that it, it's not one man's word against another, it takes two or three witnesses. Secondly... For the elders who do persist in sin, we are to deliver public rebuke. They have exercised public ministry and so deserve public rebuke. Their actions have devastating effects upon many people, not just themselves, because they are in public leadership. And they deserve to have their sins 
openly rebuked, brought out into the open for justice to be seen to be done. This is not talking about all people, but about the elders who are ruling. And notice the other reason given for this public rebuke, so that others, the rest, may stand in fear. Thirdly, show no partiality. Just as there is a temptation for enemies to spread rumours and lies about leaders, there is also great temptation for followers to protect their leader who has meant so much to them in the past. But we mustn't show prejudicial partiality when dealing with justice. If he is guilty, he must be treated like any other guilty person. He must not be protected, for that does terrible injustice to the victims and leaves the reputation of Christ and his church in the mud to be shredded by the media, as is now happening in Australia weekly. Fourthly, Timothy is warned that he is to have no participation in the sins of others by hastily laying his hands upon elders whose character, reputation and life is still marred by their sinfulness. It comes to many of us when we write character references. If I give a character reference to somebody, I'm saying that they can be trusted. When people trust them and that trust is abused, then I who give the reference must bear some blame for commending them. Ministers have been so free and easy in writing references for people, not wanting to offend people, that most organisations, most courts, etc., now actually ignore ministers' references as not worth the paper they're written on. It is a difficulty as a professional minister when somebody I hardly know comes and asks me to write a reference for them. I must be truthful. To whom it concerns, I hardly know this person. Yours, Philip Jensen. That's the truth. I must write the truth. And so I generally decline to write a reference for someone I don't know. But I know other ministers who freely write references. Don't participate in their sin. Now, in this context, the laying on of hands, you appoint a Sunday school teacher, you appoint a youth leader, are you sure that he is reliable, she is trustworthy? <laughs> because you're putting other people's children in their care. <laughs> if something goes wrong, the person who does the wrong thing is responsible. <laughs> but you are not free of a responsibility if you made the appointment. You share in that responsibility. And in the Royal Commission, over and over again, we hear of elders being found in sin and then being moved into another church or another ministry somewhere else to continue to do the evil things. Rather than being dismissed from ministry, and in the case of pedophilia, reported to the police for their crime. Now, it's a particular problem of the Roman Catholic Church, which in the state of Victoria has ten times as many faults as all the other denominations combined, which is a lot. But unfortunately, all the other denominations have also been found guilty at some point in their histories as well. My brothers and sisters, this is a... This is a for us, this is a terrible... I don't know the state in New Zealand. I'll just be surprised if you're different to us. I know you're different in lots of ways, like you know how to play rugby and we don't. But in this, my suspicions are you'll be much the same. And we mustn't be. Fifthly and finally on this, the truth will out. Some sins are secret. Others are plain for all to see. But in the end, all will be known. In the same way as good works will in the end be known. So don't act to be seen and don't try and hide. You will not in the end be able to be hidden either for good or for ill, so do what is right and no action will be able to be hidden. Now in the midst of this discussion, Paul has a little aside about Timothy taking wine for his stomach complaints rather than drinking water. 
I understand it. I can agree with it. I don't have in the slightest problem with it. I just don't know what it's got to do with the rest of the paragraph. I've read all kinds of alternatives as to how people think it is connected, but I think the ESV is most likely right. It's just put it in brackets. It's almost like he was halfway through a thought and he thought, oh, by the way, Timothy, yeah? just like a little while ago I said, by the way, this verse is quoting the New Testament, just a, an aside. But it may have some direct connection and I'm just not teaching you well because I don't understand the passage well. But given the dirty water of the ancient world, drink a little wine, don't keep drinking the water, you're keeping getting sick. Finally, what about slaves and the obligations to honour? So in chapter 6, we have two verses about it. Let all who are under the yoke of, uh, as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of honour so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The ESV revision, second edition, has changed the word from slave to bondservant, but I think that's a mistake, although I agree with what they're trying to do. You see, a slavery is a yoke. It's an obligation to work. It's not the freedom to give or withdraw your labour. Uh, it's a translation problem. See, the word diakonos is a servant. A servant was free to come and go. A slave, a doulos, was obliged to stay and serve the master to whom they owed some obligation. The terrible, awful African slave trade of the 18th century and the wonderful abolition of slavery has coloured our understanding of slavery in the Bible and the translators are trying to get around it by using the word bondservant to overcome it. Because when we think of slaves, we only ever think of the African slave trade, when in fact the slaves of the Roman world, some were as bad as that, but the vast majority were nothing like that really. Uh, some of the slaves were highly respected people. In fact, the treasurer of the whole Roman Empire was at one stage a slave. It's a, it was a different kind of slavery. And so they're trying to say it differently for us, but it doesn't really work. We still have slavery in this world and not just in the Islamic world. And The other day I was sitting in a hospital ward waiting and a man shuffled past me. He had handcuffs on his hands. He had metal chains around his ankles as he shuffled along with three armed guards around him. I can't work out why you don't call that a slave. He's in prison, presumably as a criminal, seeing they were policed up and the armed guards. See, we lock up people for labour in a prison camp for seven years, 10 years, 15 years. That's a slave. See, how did you come into slavery in the ancient world? One, you're a criminal. Two, you're a war criminal, a terrorist. You wouldn't, wouldn't lay down and accept the Roman government. Three, you got into debt. That was the main one. You couldn't pay your debts. We've solved that. We don't have debtors' prisons anymore. We have bankruptcy laws where we take away some of your civil rights. And you are born into slavery. There's different reasons for coming into slavery and there are different kinds of slaveries. And we still have this sense of obligatory service. My wife, Helen, she was a slave. And I may say, and I remind her often, I was her redeemer. For she went through the university under a government scholarship, a government teacher scholarship, which meant she had a large bond that she couldn't afford to pay back and the right of the government to send her to any school in the state of New South Wales at 24 hours notice for, for the next five years. For five years they could ring her up, they, didn't, they could send a telegram, I won't explain what that is because most of you look old enough to understand. They'd send a telegram and they'd say, you've got to be teaching at Broken Hill tomorrow morning and you've got 24 hours to get there. And they could do that for five years to her life. What the feminists never tell you when they recount the bad old days of patriarchal chauvinism is that there was, no, there was no way out for men, but there was a way out for women. If they married, they couldn't be sent anywhere except for where their husband was. That wasn't true for men. And they had to be a provided a job wherever their husband was. And their bond was reduced from five years to three years just by getting married. 
Furthermore, if they had a child, the bond was immediately cancelled and they had no further obligations. I married her and redeemed her from her bonded service. You can see the unfairness of it because if a man had a child, he wasn't freed, you see. If he got pregnant, it made no difference. <laughs> this is why the ESV has tried to express the concept of slavery as bond servant. And we still have bond servants. But I don't think it works. The word slave and we need to retain it. However, more importantly, notice what Paul teaches about those who are under the yoke of slavery. They've got to honour their masters. Notice... Two motivations for honour. The first is the good reputation of the gospel, so that the name of God, verse 1, and the teaching may not be reviled. If Christians are encouraged not to fulfil their obligations, the news will get out around that you can't trust Christians. If Christian slaves were told that they don't have to honour their masters and worse still, they could run away because they're now free in Christ, the gospel itself would be reviled. The second motivation is that of brothers if the master is a non-Christian, then our behaviour would be respect or reviling for our Lord. But what if the master is a Christian? Well, then, says Paul, we have all the more reason to honour him. For our work is benefiting one who is a beloved brother. Notice the idea of honour and dishonour there is not simply being polite to them. It's hard work, fulfilling our obligation to serve as required. Just because I am one in Christ Jesus with him does not mean I'm now free and don't have to be obliged to him. So to sum up the whole chapter, our behaviour in the household of God is determined by the great mystery of the gospel, secret of the gospel, which is both supernatural and natural, both this world and the world to come, both spiritual and earthly. For it is Christ who appeared here in the resurrected flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, but proclaimed amongst the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's both the age to come and this age. Therefore, the way Timothy is to minister and behave and to teach others to behave is to honour people in this world in the position of life with which God has called them. Older than him, younger than him, male and female, widows, elders, slaves and masters. Honour to whom honour is due is the Christian social ethic. Honour to whom honour is due is the Christian social ethic. And so, James chapter 2 speaks what, you know, a rich man comes into the synagogue and the church is called the synagogue there, and you show him a seat of honour, are you not making a distinction that is not true? Absolutely, because wealth is not the key. But when the governor or the queen or somebody, the prime minister comes in, respect those who, for whom we should honour. Not because of the person, but because of their role that they have been appointed to by God. And so honour to whom honour is due is the Christian social ethic in some. Okay.